Well, there was a bunch of batteries left on this, making sure I had enough energy to um, get through this, I guess. I didn't notice that when I was up here before. Um, the songs we sang, um, you know, there was no planning on that, and I just think it's kind of um, always divine how God works those things out. And I don't know if you, uh, the first song when, you know, God remember me, please. Like, he's not an old, um, demented man up in heaven. Um, I think the second song um, says it best when we are prone to wander. Please remember me, because I really don't deserve it. But, um, And I think the last song was super fitting. It, sometimes we just don't feel real good about ourselves, and it's really good to know that God loves us. And singing that over and over again um, really kind of made me feel um, loved this morning, which is uh, um, just something really good to feel in the house of the Lord. So um, we are back in First Timothy, so if you want to um, pull open your version of Scripture, um, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 through 25, the last little bit of that chapter. Um, we've uh, been in it for a little while now. Uh, we took a short break from it, and uh, we're back in it. Um, just so you know, the version of it that's going to come up is not what I'm going to be reading. Um, I was stubborn of heart and did not want to change to meet what the slides do. I read out of the NASB, um, and you're going to be reading that or seeing the Christian Holman up there, but um, that's that. And the other thing is, I just got to confess, I just was sinning the whole time we were singing, because you people who come out of nowhere, who can still play guitar and sing, and these gifts that the Lord gives you, and I can't do anything musical, just drives me crazy. And uh, I get very envious and jealous, so forgive me um, right off the bat, Lord. And um, Gene and Diana, you did a marvelous job, and I love the rendition of that. It was kind of folky and country and, like, I don't know, it was just great. So let me pray for us, and we'll get started. we got lots of time. I think Gene said he went an hour and 20 minutes at one time. I think we're going to do that today. we got tons of time. All right, um, just bow your heads with me. Lord, we humbly come before you today to worship you, not for us, but because you alone deserve all the glory and honor. May your will, by your spirit, help me to speak your truth and deliver that truth to eager and willing hearts. Prepare our hearts now to receive your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me um, kind of just recap where we've been um, and uh, where we're at. So... We've been in First Timothy for a little bit. Um, we've learned a lot of things over the uh, first four chapters and almost finished in the fifth. Um, Paul's writing to his spiritual son and protege, Timothy, who is in Ephesus, and it's approximately the year 63 A.D. I don't know if there's any definites on that. You guys know I like the minutiae. Um, so he's urging Timothy to stay there and to lead the people as their pastor. He's mentoring Timothy as how to pastor well. Okay, he's telling Timothy, teach the truth Paul taught him, okay, to be wary of false teachers and false doctrine and to rebuke those who commit those offenses, to remember the importance of prayer and that there is only one true God. You have to remember they're in a polytheistic culture, not that we're not, but they were really uh, prone to all this idol worship and not to get um, swayed by any of that. 
Then in chapter 3, we see him kind of go through the qualifications of what it means to be an elder and a deacon um, and all of those things that are there to help put men in place into church leadership. And he tells them also, he says, you really need to be a good servant of Jesus. You have to be the example, showing others those things of good speech, purity, love, and conduct. Okay? And then the last time we were in Timothy, Zane uh, preached on the lessons dealing with widows and the care for them. Okay? Um, the What is right to do and what is not right to do. And all of that kind of is the nuances of skillfully negotiating real-life issues in the church and doing that through the power and wisdom of Jesus and not ourselves. So that's kind of where we're at in Timothy. We're going to be touching on uh, kind of spending a little bit of time um, sitting on verses 17 and 18, uh, but not going to neglect the rest. So as I put my glasses on, um, we're going to read... um, 17 through 25. And it says this, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worth his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue to sin... Rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise also, deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. All right, jumping into verse 17 and 18. Um, we first kind of, I got to just set up a definition of what an elder is. Um, uh, you know, when Zane started this, he kind of just laid it out there, it's a pastor. But I want to kind of go into a little more detail on that, just because some of us were in churches where elders were super uh, important uh, pieces of, of church. Their, your definition of it might be a little different. Um, maybe you've never heard of what an elder really is in a church. So, um, let's get a kind of a common meaning and what's biblical and how we can use this in Scripture. As they say in real estate, location, location, location. You want to buy something, you need the right spot. Well, breaking down Scripture, the most important thing is context, context, context. Okay, We're dealing with the first century church here, and that's the place we have to start, and that's the context of it. Okay, So the early church was set in Jerusalem, all right? So the church just explodes there, right? Well, the only pattern they really have to go from is the pattern of the synagogue, the Pharisees and Sadducees and the leadership there. Now, we don't have anything in Scripture that gives us specific details what that really looked like. But we do have Acts 15 and 21, which gives us some examples of kind of how 
the Jerusalem church kind of served as a decision-making council, okay? It was associated with the apostles, um, and it was kind of used when difficult decisions, conflict, doctrinal issues, and those kind of things came up, and it was brought before them in Jerusalem. You might remember when you had Jewish leaders and um, Jewish teachers going out, following after Paul, hitting these churches that are just getting started and preaching, you can't be saved without being circumcised to the Gentiles. Paul's like, that is not, not the gospel. It's like, you can't be doing that. Peter does the same thing. So they actually all go back to Jerusalem and bring this before that, and the council agrees that that's wrong. So they, they are a kind of a decision-making governing body, and they put out a letter to the churches to tell them, do not do that anymore, and go from there. So that's one kind of form that we see in Scripture there. But in Acts 14, we're not going to go there. I'm just giving you references. Paul and Barnabas appoint elders in the churches that they planted But these elders do not fit that profile uh, at all of the Jerusalem Church Council of Elders. Uh, They're also referred to as overseers and and, uh, spiritual shepherds of the church. So we have very limited biblical description of what an elder is and what it does, okay? Um, We can deduce that these men were spiritual leaders. They may have had spiritual gifts like prophecy, miracles, um, tongues, but it wasn't a biblical mandate. Um, these men were active in ministry, not just a decision-making council that you went to. So um, I'm going to conclude, and we can conclude from this, that when Paul and Barnabas and others put elders in place to be pastoral ministers, we're going to relate that to our day, just like Zane said when he preached on chapter 3 in this. It's really the guys who have the feet on the ground, the pastors who are leading the congregation. Now, I know everybody's got their own thing on this, um, and everybody may view elders differently, and many churches use elders differently, okay? Um, They give them different roles for different situations, um, but it's not the sole focus of this sermon. I just needed us to be on a common ground, so we're going to think of this as pastors of the church, okay? And I think as we move forward through this, you'll kind of see as the verses kind of go along um, what that really looks like and how uh, elders and pastors should be treated, okay? So you might remember, we got to take a look back at 1 Timothy chapter 3. You can turn back a page or it might be on your same page if you want, and we don't have to go there, but 1 Titus or Titus 1, uh, chapters, or chapter 1, 6 through 9, give us the qualifications of what elders have. The first list of qualifications I'm going to run down, and I'm not going to talk about every one of them, um, even though it would be great to be here all day uh, talking to you all. Um, we won't do that. Um, is what's mentioned in both uh, 1 Timothy and Titus. And the next list I'm going to give you, and I'll, I'll mention that, they're only mentioned in one of the books, Okay. So three times the person must be above reproach was mentioned in in both of those. They must be respectable, the husband of one wife. It's always good to be married to your first wife. It's it's a good thing. Temperate, prudent, hospitable, not addicted, and it says too much wine. But let's just say any mind-altering substance we do not want to be addicted to. Or even, you know, elk hunting. 
that would not be a good thing to be addicted to either. Although, I don't know. Um, that's yet to be contested. My next one is on the list is not pugnacious. I love the word. Does any, just raise your hand. Does anybody know what pugnacious means? If you know, if you have a good vocabulary? No. Um, pugnacious, like, I like to fight. I like to argue. I'm prone to it. I just want to be, a, it's just a, like, yeah. So the next thing right behind that means, well, if you're not going to be pugnacious, you need to be gentle, you need to be peaceable, and you need to be free from the love of money. It's hard in this day and age. I'm sure it was hard back then, too. Now, the next ones are the ones I was saying were only mentioned in to one or the other of the books. Okay, manages his household well. Controls his children with dignity. Every time I read this one and as I practice you all probably know somebody who handle their children worse than the children are. I have one friend in particular that's like, you're worse than your children, the way you handle the situation. Like, they're not that bad. Relax. Calm down. So handling your children with dignity, I just, every time I read that, it just brings us one person to mind. Um, here's one for you. Believing children that are well-behaved. Wow. That, uh, that's a work in progress, isn't it? Um, not a new convert. Good reputation with non-believers. Loving what is good. Being just. Being devout. Faithful to the word and doctrine. And last one is what's kind of more most pertinent um, to our uh, scripture is able to teach. Okay, That's in um, verse 17 that we'll be kind of focusing on a little bit here. All right. These are all great qualities. Man, you would love to have them in every one of your employees, a servant, a manager, uh, maybe even your administration. Or could you even imagine you order your pizza and the guy that's serving you or making your pizza has most of these qualities? He'll actually have his beard and hair cover on and you won't have hair in your pizza. He won't be wiping his nose, flipping out pepperoni onto your pizza. It'll be nicely placed in its box and delivered to you at the appropriate time. So it's good to have those qualities in everybody. But God lays these qualities specifically on the men pastoring and leading his church. Okay? So that's the working model we have. What we're going to use as an elder, we can just interchange it with pastor and how he should behave, how he needs to run his household, how he needs to treat others, and how he needs the pastor's God, how he needs to pastor God's church. Okay? So keep remembering the context of this. We are in the inception of church planting. Okay? It, it, there is no handbook for these guys. They are a, a work in progress, each a little different. Every time they start a church, it's new people, it's new places, it's new culture. Um, so it has its unique challenges. And it's never been done before. So when we think of that, we can even relate that to us right now. And that's probably why you see such a diversity of how people use deacons and elders and pastors and bishops and all that stuff. And that's not the focus today. But just remember that. So even more so, it was probably a whole lot more difficult back then than it is now. Okay? Now, this section, next section is right up my alley. Okay? Um, did you ever notice that it's really, really hard to find someone in Scripture that's a good example of being a good leader, a good dad? Um, it's just difficult. And I'm the guy you want to find the negative. That's what I find. It's super hard for me to be encouraging. It's super hard for me to be positive. Um, I go right for the negative. But my object to do that is to show the positive. Most people don't see it that way. 
You know, it takes, what, three positives to negate one negative or something like that? But what's really amazing is God is great at taking these people, these broken, sinful people, and showing how he can still utilize them for his plan and accomplish it when we would think there is no way this knucklehead who commits all these sins is going to do something good for God. Okay? So, what I need you to remember is all the qualifications we went through, remember that the text in verse 17 is the elders that rule well, because I'm going to show you a whole bunch of people who do very poorly. Okay? All right? And at the end, hopefully, you'll be able to see the contrast. All right? This is like fire hose machine gun. Ready? I'm going to try to do it as fast as I can. Genesis 3 and 4. Adam and Eve blew it for all of us. Why did you eat the fruit? Oh my goodness. They get kicked out of the garden and curses abound for the rest of us. Cain doesn't honor God with the first fruits, the best that he could have given God. He gets mad. He rages. He commits the first murder and kills his brother. And he's banished by God and suffers eternal separation from God. Not only while he's alive, but I'm sure afterwards as well. Exodus 32, Aaron, what were you thinking when you made the golden calf? He dies in the wilderness and doesn't get to go to the promised land. Leviticus 10, Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, I'm sure they learned a little bit from dad, burn strained incense on the altar and God kills them with fire on the spot. Pain and suffering abound for the family. They're not allowed to leave the temple and for the camp. 1 Samuel, Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons, worthless men, did not know God. Thieves, gluttons, sexually immoral. God kills them in war. God punishes Eli, their dad, because he was a very poor father and a very poor leader. He was morbidly obese, and God kills him by sending the message that his kids are killed in war. He's sitting on a chair, he falls over, and he's so big that his weight breaks his neck when he hits the ground. Samuel, great leader, poor father. Scripture says his sons, Joel and Abijah, did not follow Samuel's ways. They perverted justice and went after dishonest gain and took bribes. We're almost done. Saul, terrible leader, terrible father. Does priestly duties, steals things, all kinds, you guys know his story. God rips the kingdom away from him and gives it to David. Second Samuel, David has many leadership and many fatherly mistakes. There's a lot of time spent on David. But God states, you shall not build my house. The sword will never leave your household, and I will raise up evil from your household to destroy you. New Testament. This is super broad, and I'm keeping this one super short because I could go on and on and on. But basically, the rulers of Israel focus basically on the Levitical system. They don't pay attention to what the Messiah really is. They want to deal with their politics and their economy. Sound familiar to our world? instead of worshiping the Messiah that is sent. And they kill Jesus. And three words for them. Woe to them, the Bible says. Um, that says enough. I would not want to be in their shoes. Hopefully, through that example of how people fail, we see the qualities that God is looking for. Now, I'm not going to go into great detail, and I know you can argue that God appointed some of these people. Yes, but... The failures were there, and those character qualities um, were not utilized. Okay, So these people failed to run God's temple correctly, to run his churches correctly. They failed to teach his people correctly. They failed the families, 
and they failed to meet the qualities that are instilled um, in the New Testament church. So, so when we look at the text we have today, men running, or I'm sorry, um, men ruling well, um, especially preaching and teaching. The emphasis really is on the teaching side of this, okay? They deserve double honor, all right? Um, every one of these men had to be able to preach the gospel. Not all of them were great teachers, okay? But when they are good teachers, they deserve something special. So what does that double honor mean? So when we look back in 2 Timothy, if we look at chapter, or not 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy um, chapter uh, 4, verse, or 5, verse 3, sorry, getting a little confused there. And then we're talking about the widows, the last thing Zane preached on. We see that it says, honor the widows who are widows indeed. Now, that honor that is used for the widows and for the elders is only slightly different. If you look in a concordance, they're literally one number off from each other. So what it says about the widows, it says the widows are to, you're to fix a value on them. They are to be prized and to be cared for, okay? For she is valuable, all right? Now that doesn't mean like, oh, you're a great old lady, I love you, and I'm going to come and sit and have coffee with you. That's part of it. But the real part of it is to care for them. That means monetarily material. You need to house them, clothe them, feed them. And that's how the deacon ministry got started, remember? Because they weren't getting fed properly um, like the um, Jewish um, widows were. So it is a material, monetarial thing that needed to be done for the widows. Same for the elder, except differently. He is valuable. He needs to be paid for his worth and his work. Okay? So those who work hardest at teaching the word, pastoring, discipling others should get paid not only a single portion, but a double portion. They should be doubly honored, okay? I.e., those who just govern and are not truly pastoral ministers, um, they don't get paid. So if you look at most churches that use an elder board, I would venture to say they're not paying the elders a salary, um, but they are paying their teaching and preaching pastors, okay? Now, maybe there is a church out there that doesn't, but so that's kind of why I want you to see that the, that's really a biblical mandate here, all right? So we go into verse 18. It really stems from Leviticus. My, my family would be like, oh, at least you didn't go back to Genesis again, Dad. Um, but we're going to go to Leviticus, really simply. Levitical law, the Levites were chosen by God. They were removed from the 11 tribes or the 12 tribes and taken apart and given to God. What did the 11 other tribes do? They took care of the Levites, monetarily, food, property, all of those things. The portion when they entered the promised land, they didn't get one. They had stuff set aside from the other tribes for them to use. So we go all the way back to Levitical law. And if you look at Leviticus 19.13, it says the wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night. Back then, in context, if you worked hard all day, you got paid at the end of the day because you needed to feed yourself and you needed to feed your family. It's not like today where you get paid twice a month, monthly, whatever, or how that works. So um, it's saying don't withhold that. If you have it, you pay them, especially if they're a hard worker and doing their job properly. Okay? Deuteronomy 25.4 is what verse 18 says. Okay? So if you break it down, it says, If the farmer's ox deserves to eat, how much more does this apply to the elder or the pastor? 
that makes worship happen. Who works hard at teaching and preaching, okay? Luke 10.7, it's an interesting thing when I was uh, studying for this. It says, stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you, for the laborer is worth his wages. And I think it says the same thing in your version. The laborer is worthy of its wages. So, interestingly, unless it was some euphemism, which I couldn't find anywhere, that not euphemism, but saying that was used throughout the land, um, Luke's gospel was already out there and being used because um, that is taken straight from his gospel. And it meant you were sent out to do a job. That's when Jesus sent them out. You need to be doing the ministry of God and your labor will pay your way. You'll be fed, you'll be clothed, you'll be housed. Same thing is um, said in Matthew 10, 9 and 10. This is when Jesus sends them out with nothing to teach them. He says, you're going to do this. You're going to go preach the gospel, and you're going to perform miracles and uh, uh, remove evil spirits from people. And guess what? For the worker is worthy of his support. If you're not doing those, you're not going to get fed. Okay? Now, I want to take a a quick time to read out of 1 Corinthians. Okay? Um, Because this is Paul's argument when he was in Corinth. Um, He wasn't being... They weren't being treated quite right. So... Paul would be considered an elder. He was in there preaching, teaching, and setting up uh, churches. This is chapter 9, verses 3 through 14, and I am going to take the time to read them because I think it's important. Now, this is how, um, just listen to how um, Paul states we should be being taking care of our pastors, okay? Do we not, oops, sorry, my defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking together altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it is written, Because the plowman ought to plow in hope, And the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, Is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? That goes back to the Levitical um, uh, rules. Um, So, Paul really states it there in 1 Corinthians how we really need to take care of our pastors. So, to simplify this, we need to financially support our pastors. Now, disclosure. I didn't get a kickback from Jane or Justin or the church or anything. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. So, uh, I'm going to hit on this pretty hard, okay? That means salary. Time, gifts, love offerings, don't do them in um, 
disdain and obligation, do them in joy. This is not optional for us. It is a biblical mandate. If you are not out, if you're not doing it, you're out of God's will. Okay, and you're also missing out on the blessings um, that our spiritual leaders deserve, and um, it's just really good to rejoice with them in it. Okay. All right, enough of that for the moment. We'll, we'll, I'll re, re hit that again in just a bit. We're going to move on to verses 19 through 21. Um, now these refer, refer also to Mosaic law, okay? This law applies to everyone, but is brought to light because, guess what? Anytime you get a position of power, abuse can happen, okay? Um, we tend to not utilize authority very well sometimes um, as we are prone to wander, okay? So Numbers 35 and Deuteronomy 17 speak to this first off, okay? But it's in relation to murder and um, manslaughter, all right? Um, so I can't say, um, I saw Ed kill somebody yesterday and start rumors about him, Okay? Um, I have to have two or three witnesses. That's what those two um, references go to. But then if you go to uh, Deuteronomy 19, um, it not only relates to um, murder, it really clarifies uh, it in a nutshell here, and I'll read it to you. Deuteronomy 19.15, it says, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. Okay? So it's just not hearsay. It's just not um, he said, she said. It must have witnesses. It must be supported. And if you look at our judicial system, that's one of the ways it was set up as well. So, um, so if sin is found, though, as we go in through that or through First Timothy, if sin is found, Jesus gives a directive. All right, that directive is in Matthew eighteen verses fifteen through seventeen, and um, you might know it. It might be written on a pillow at home or a sign on your um, wall, but it says this. It says, "If any brother sins, go and show him his fault in private." If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Great. Okay? But if he does not listen to you, take one or two or more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, as we just read in Deuteronomy, every fact may be confirmed. 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the whole church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So when he um, says it in um, verse, uh, let's see, which one is it? Verse 20, it says, those who continue to sin, okay, you go through that process we saw in Matthew, rebuke them in the presence of all. Now, rebuke doesn't mean a little admonishment in front of the church. The rebuke is um, painful because they want to make it fearful for sinning again, Okay. Um, and if they've gotten that far, the chances of them repenting are probably pretty slim. But um, God works miracles, doesn't he, with all of us. So the key is that continue to sin peace. Um, these guys, um, it's why we keep going back to those character qualities in this. Okay, Verse 21, also taken from Deuteronomy, um, Deuteronomy 1.17 and 10.17, 
say this in paraphrase. It says, be like the Lord. He is impartial and does not take bribes, okay? When these guys get into these positions of power, we saw uh, in some of my examples that they cheated. They stole, they took things, they took bribes, and they made bad decisions, okay? I think of it this way. In verse 21, um, when he really challenges him, um, it's like the old days, you know. For us, it would be important for us if we sat on uh, in a court and we were called as a witness that we'd put our hand on the Bible and we would swear by the Bible to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, right? Um, today, I'm not sure that would go very far. But Paul says, listen, I'm going to place the weight of the Father, the Son, and the uh, chosen angels as witnesses against you, Timothy, and everybody else um, when it comes to this stuff, all right? So super important that we take that to heart as well, that we know that we are being um, held to that account as well. It's not just the, the leadership, but it's, it's everyone. Verse 22 um, kind of takes a little twist, um, and it, things kind of just get a little different here. It says, be careful... Um, what does it say? It says, do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily, okay? So this is referring to appointing somebody. Anybody who's a deacon or been a deacon um, uh, or has been an elder or pastor um, know that the ordination process is um, all about what we talked about in 1 Timothy and Titus, okay? It's going before a bunch of guys who hopefully know you really well, or most of them do. I've been part of a handful of ordination ceremonies, and um, you basically take your life, and it's now an open book, and anybody who knows anything about you, two or three witnesses or more, and they tend to ask your wife about you, which is really scary because they tend to know everything, and to make sure you're qualified, okay? So he's saying here, don't go pick Joe Blow, who just came to church this week, and say, man, you sing really good and you play the guitar, and man, we'd really like you to take over our whole worship and do this. Before you know their character, you start talking to people who know them, talk to their wives, and you get to meet with them. So don't be hasty in putting people into power of leadership or making them elders and pastors, okay? Because guess what? You are now held responsible for them, and that weight of their mistakes and their your irresponsible decision is a sin against you, okay? Now, um, I don't know if everybody's been waiting for verse 23, um, but this is my biblical take on it, okay? Um, it's not any different than what Zane said in the past either, okay? Um, so it shouldn't be uh, anything new. So apparently, Timothy has some gut ailments, all right? Those of you who have gut problems, I sympathize with you, okay? I, I would never want that. I'm a foodie. I would hate to have to worry about what I eat and my guts hurt all the time. Um, but the Lord tells him through Paul to, hey, stop drinking just water and drink a little wine in moderation. It might help you, okay? All right? There's nothing inherently sinful about drinking a little alcohol in moderation, okay? But here's the risk, right? It's the same example Zane is going to give you. Eric goes down to Rosar's and uh, gets himself a nice big box of wine because he's in entertaining 
this weekend. He's got a bunch of family in, and I'm going to be, I, got, I need a box of wine because I need to serve 25 people, okay? You know, one of my coworkers, oh, Eric and Nicole are going to get a little lit up this weekend. I guess he's not quite the guy he says he's going to be. That's where people go. They don't go like, oh, I wonder if Eric's having a dinner party this weekend. The people who don't know you well, who don't know your character, that's a huge risk. So my question to you is how important is that drink? How important is that box of wine? Whatever it is, okay? These people are, people are not going to think the best of you. We're just not that good, okay? That's me included. I'm, I work with people who make bad choices all the time, okay? Not my, well, the people I get to take care of. Um, it's easy to default that way, okay? Now, I am not going to discount there are some medical properties to drinking wine, but this is not first century Jerusalem or Asia, okay? We have better modern medical advances today that will probably do you a little better than a, a drinking wine every day because there is a risk to drinking wine every day or any type of mind-altering um, substance. It becomes a problem. Coming from a family full of alcoholics, I can attest to that, okay? So, um, now, again, not condemning the use of it, but it does condemn the abuse of it, all right? The last two verses now, okay, these verses are kind of loosely tied to verses 19 through 22. Um, sometimes in Paul's letters, you know, there's a lot of different stuff there, all right? So, um, this is kind of strange. Like, I- I'm going to just say that what it does is, uh, it, some of us are old enough to remember the guys that would go around with billboards over their shoulder, and one would be in the front, and one would be in the back. Sometimes you see them at the at tax time. Like right about now, you see them dancing around with a weird thing and flipping a billboard around, but they're not tied to anymore. So think of it this way. Um, there are people in this world who have no problem sinning, could care less about God, could care less about repenting, and it is written all over that front billboard. You know every one of their sins that they do. And they are going to walk before God, and they're going to be right before Him. And that is what that verse is saying. That, those sins are so blatant, they are going to go before them in judgment. In the same sense, there's the guy or gal who thinks they're hiding all of the sins from the world. And some people do. Some people are really good at it. Um, anybody a Ravi Zacharias fan? Man, I loved that ministry, and what a terrible end to it. Those are the sins written on the back billboard, okay? And when they get to the judgment seat, guess what? You may know they're there, but you can't see them, but God can. Because he's going to stand you before him, and he's going to spin you around, and he's going to see all those sins. That's what that verse is talking about. Conversely, the same thing is true. Some people are really, really good at showing their good deeds and living for Christ, not in a boasting way. They're just great Christians, okay? I mean, if you say Mother Teresa, everybody goes, oh, she, you know, I mean, it, you just know that. Same principle. Others are super quiet and anonymous about what they do, okay? Maybe they're great givers, never tell anybody what they give. Scripture says don't let the right hand know what the left hand's doing. Those kind of people. God is going to see that as well, okay? Um, there's a piece I wanted to say about that. Um, 
so, and when God sees those things, he's not swayed by them, okay? He's not swayed by what we do. Um, he's looking at our heart and the motivation behind it. Um, he counts the worth of it and um, making sure it's for his glory. All right? Um, it's, uh, he reads our hearts and knows the motivation behind our works, um, which is kind of both comforting and scary because um, sometimes we can be deceptive to ourselves. Um, so everything that's done for good or for evil with the right or wrong motivation, um, everything that's hidden, God's going to expose. Okay? So here's the take-home stuff. All right? Um, again, I have not been endorsed or um, compensated in any way, shape, or form to say these things. Okay? Um, your pastor, Zane and Justin, though Justin doesn't hold an actual title um, here at LBC, um, they biblically deserve to be cared for and supported um, with material and monetary means, okay? That's just the biblical fact of it, okay? Um, and if you think they do it well, the jobs that they do, um, they deserve a double portion, okay? Every one of us that's been under their teaching have been blessed by it, okay? All the things that go on behind the scenes here at LBC stem from their leadership, okay? Their guidance through the Holy Spirit. They have grown this church, and I will tell you evidence behind that. Not only that I, I knew it and I know it, but when we did communion last time, um, I was kind of counting the people who weren't here in my head. I missed it by four. I didn't even have enough because I was underestimating how much we have grown in the, since he's taken over pastoring here. And I felt like kind of a schmuck. And I was just like, okay, next time I'll just be a little more trusting and generous and put more in the plates. Um, but, yeah, so we have grown, and that is through um, their leadership and guidance. Um, you can always count on Zane, uh, Justin, teaching the, the, the truth of God's holy word. Um, he does not compromise that in any way, shape, or form. That is something hard to find in this day and age when you um, start listening to pastors preach, as Gene gave a great example of that last week. Um, so, um, not in his preaching, in um, his example that he used. Sorry, I should clarify that. Um, so, uh, just remember, when the budget comes up, love offerings come up, stipends for housing, all of those things... Um, don't be left behind in blessing um, the men who truly deserve um, that double portion of honor. Other stuff, okay? If you see a brother or sister sinning, hey, address it like Matthew 18 says, okay? Um, take it um, to them and then take it to the Lord. Um, let him work it out, um, those verses that we went through in Matthew 18 were not directed solely at the elders. They're for all of us. It is a biblical mandate as well. Um, and remember, God sees it all. He is just and righteous, and we can trust in that. He's not going to be partial to anything. Um, and I guess I'll get back on the alcohol um, pedestal for just a quick second um, to finish up with that. Um, while it's not a sin to drink alcohol in moderation, we don't want to look like hypocrites or be a stumbling block to anyone, okay? Um, Non-believers don't know God's ways, and then 
some believers are new, and they're kind of what Paul would call weak believers, all right? Um, how, again, important is that drink to you? Is it worth pushing someone away or giving um, a wrong impression? Now, Paul speaks to this um, with eating food sacrificed to idols in 1 Corinthians 8. While food and alcohol are not the same, the principle is in this, okay? Verse 9 of that chapter says, Take care that this liberty of yours, you have the liberty to do both, okay, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And verse 13 says, Therefore, if food causes my brothers to stumble, I have a lot of Seventh-day Adventist friends, okay? And I used to give them a hard time about their eating habits. And now I'm like, man, I've been wrong, 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 wrong about that. Um, man, they're, if they're doing it for the Lord, great. I am not going to be a stumbling block for them. But therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, or alcohol, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble again. How important is whatever that is um, to you, that drink or um, other option? So, um, let me uh, close this in prayer, and uh, well, let me let me add one more thing. We got time. We, we're way ahead of schedule today. Um, uh, choices, okay. Everything's about choices. You hear me talk about people I, I take care of. Um, I, I say this all the time. Eighty-five percent of the people I take care of in a hospital through my almost thirty years of doing this, they just make bad choices one after another. Now, we make choices every day. We make choices uh, what time we're going to get up. Um, If you have one of those jobs where you don't have to get up to be at work a certain time, I'll go in a little later. I'll do this. Um, I'll do that. What's going to be for lunch today? What's going to be for dinner? What am I going to wear? Oh, I have so many pairs of pants to wear. We make all kinds of choices. But the choices we've seen today, especially the negative ones I showed, are super important, okay? We have to make conscious decisions about how we act, especially our elders, but they apply to us as well. And ultimately, we have that one choice that's most important, right? That is, what are we going to do with Jesus? Jesus is that choice. Um, I was almost 35, or I was 35 when I was saved, and I went through life I just went through life. I thought I was kind of a, I didn't know what salvation was, but raised Catholic, I I thought I was saved. But maybe I didn't do enough good works. Maybe I didn't do enough of that. And there was no reassurance. And then when I finally had the truth shared over and over and over again, I still chose not to accept. I swear, I tell everybody, I heard the gospel at least 200 times. That choice is so important to us, whether we have family members that we're working on, co-workers, people we just meet. But that choice that we make is just, well, it's eternal. We have a choice of spending an eternity in hell separated from God or an eternity with him living in heaven. Um, I don't know how else to say choices matter um, except that when we choose Jesus those character qualities that we went over, they become a lot easier. 
not perfect. Those people that even God worked through still made mistakes. We're still going to make mistakes. I still make, I was sinning this morning. I already told you right there while we're singing worship songs. Jealous and envious. Um, But it makes it so much easier. And the one thing that we know about God is he is always faithful to hear a repentant prayer and forgive. And that's something we need to do as well. So as we leave today, and I'll pray us out of here in just a second, if you haven't made that choice for Jesus, or you thought you did, and you didn't get a different understanding of what salvation really is, or somebody you're working on, um, be diligent to be, keep praying for them and to keep working on them. Don't give up. Um, that is an eternal choice. Um, I heard it the other day again on the radio. It's like, man, I do not want to be responsible for missing out on so-and-so and be in front of that judgment scene and say, hey, you remember when you treated that guy like that, when you could have spent the time? Yeah, I could have done that. Choices are important. So just like you're on the plane, things go bad, the oxygen mask comes down. What does it say? Put your mask on first so you can help others. Get right with Jesus first. And that's all help others, okay? Let me close this in prayer.